Well, hello. Guess what? Weird sound issues this time. So the first several minutes, it's pretty freaking bad, but I promise that's only for a few minutes. And then and then it goes to kind of bad. And then I believe after our first break, it gets better. Sorry about that. It's a really good episode. We get into it. So enjoy. A term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Why don't we go to church? We go to church. On Christmas. Welcome to They Coined It. Hey, Roberta. Hey, Dan. What I love about the color blue, they do this a lot in Mad Men. They talk about the past. You know, if you look at an old black and white picture... Even if it's a family member, someone you're related to or know very well. But those old, old, you know, turn of the century pictures, 1910s, 1920s. Where nobody, where, where they hadn't been taught to smile yet, right? Nobody was, that was, it was like, hold still. No candids. Yeah. It, it, well, taking a picture was a big deal. You would prepare for it. It was not, there was no, the, the candid shot had not been invented. Not even candid. You were literally taught. I mean, nobody said cheese. It's, I mean, I wonder when say cheese happened because they were not, they would not smile. You would get a family portrait where everybody looked, you're looking straight, you're holding still. It's like an oil painting. You're supposed to look like you look in a painting, you know? What I always notice is you, as such, as a result, you cannot really relate. It's hard to relate to people in those pictures. They, they might have a facial feature or something distinguishing that's, if it's family, you notice, or something interesting. But for the most part, we don't feel like those are people the way we're people, even though we all are, obviously. They just, they, they seem so distant. And so, and in 1963, with this episode, time, uh, time of this episode, you know, that was 40 years ago, 50 years ago at the most for these 10s and 20s pictures. And the pictures that Roger and Bert are looking at in Bert's office are like 40 years old, right? It was the beginning of the firm. It was the 40th anniversary. And they're looking at these photos, remember her, and, and all this kind of... In this world, in Mad Men, these are real people that you knew and talked with and know, knew what their voice sounded like and knew their quirks and knew how they walked down the hall and knew you know all these little things. These were real people. They were three-dimensional flesh and blood, not the way they appear to us in these photos. And what the show does so well is not is not act like they're in the distant past, because they're hardly in the distant past. Guys, 40 years ago was 1981. <laughs> you know, it's it's that kind of a thing. It's that recent to us, and that's how recent it was to them. Yeah, we've been celebrating all these anniversaries of, what was it, the 35th anniversary of Pretty in Pink. There's been, I've listened to like oh, four God. podcasts about that movie. Yeah, and- Born in the USA. Born in the USA, brings Springsteen fan. Born in the USA and uh, Darkness on the Edge of the Town was 35 and 45 years ago this week. And that, uh, listeners, is the perfect, perfect divider between Dan and I. Not that I'm not a Springsteen fan, but you're like a Springsteen guy. Yeah. And yeah, me, yeah. I'm a pretty in pink. <laughs> like that was, that was <laughs> John epic. Hughes. That right. one changed, that one in particular. You can be both. You can be both, but yeah. It's actually low key, and you're hearing this in a lot of these discussions of pretty in pink. It's the best one. It's the underrated actual best John Hughes of that, of the Molly Ring, like of the, not, not like, I'm not talking about Uncle Buck. Yeah. yeah. Like the, of, the, of the, team the vintage eighties, John Hughes. It's yeah. the one that holds up the best. Let me put it that way in terms of like cringe stuff. 
pretty in pain. Anyway, point is, it feels like it was five minutes ago. Yeah, <laughs> truly. And that's your that's what you're saying. The color blue, written by Kater Gordon and Matthew Weiner, directed by Michael Uppendahl. Original air date was October 18th, 2009, and it takes place on Monday through Friday, somewhere between late September and mid-October 1963. This is the episode I saw some scenes get filmed, and I met Mike Uppendahl, and and you're right, and you were right. There was there was some discussion at some point where I was like, I didn't remember meeting John Hammond at Tux, but that's because my memory is clearly shit. Because how do you forget that? Because that's what happened. <laughs> that was the scene. We saw him be be prepped to enter that bedroom. Cool. So this is where Don is staying at Suzanne's uh, apartment overnight, pretty regularly. Gross. The creative team at the office is working on new concepts for Aquanet and Western Union. Don meets Suzanne's brother, who's epileptic. Lane learns that Sterling Cooper's up for sale as it is celebrating its 40th anniversary. And Betty learns what's in Don's locked office drawer. What an episode. Ooh, what an episode. Big stuff. And Lane's and uh, Rebecca Price is expressing her disgruntlement at a, at a high pitch. Oh, what was it? What was it? Your Am I to entertain your ballad of dissatisfaction or has something actually happened? Because I am at work, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I say that to my wife every day. She's like, you're at work. You're in your basement office and I'm in the upstairs office and we're both working. Don't come in here, Pete, and infect me with your, <laughs> your <laughs> anxiety. Great. Ballad. Well, first of all, ballad. Just saying ballad, I think, is is classic. Uh, but But this episode, I think... I often talk about um, big thematic episodes versus plot. And as we get towards the end of each season, the plot tends to pick up, right? Because we've spent all this time with sweeping themes, and but the plot always ends up catching up <laughs> toward the end. And this is one of those episodes, right? It's already the 10th episode of a 13-episode season. So this is where, where shit has to... Train, train needs to start moving down the track. So that's what we see here in a lot of ways. It's Don and Suzanne moving forward. It's... it's um. Betty, finally, this long mystery of of Don and, and what's inside that drawer that she needs to find out about. And of course, we know that it's going to be a, a pretty big deal breaker when, <laughs> when she finally gets in there. And this is where it happens. And on Mad Men, oftentimes, we'll see things pop up out of nowhere, become the biggest deal in the universe, and get resolved in 20 minutes. You know, you'll have just this huge smattering of action in in this big burst. Here we get we get the gun loaded uh, uh, and we know it's going to go off. Right. Well, this is and this is the opposite of that. This is the other Mad Men thing that Mad Men does is, I mean, she's been trying to get into this drawer for like two years mm -hmm, and for sure. she still doesn't say anything at the end of this episode. Right. But she's trying, you know, and it goes back to season one where she finds that phone bill and doesn't and doesn't say anything. Right. So both of those kind of weird extremes are are Mad Men uh that apart right but, but we're not left to wonder we're not left to wonder what she's thinking about it or will she confront don she's sitting there waiting for him to come home and is we right we're waiting for her to confront him and he doesn't come home that night and then it's rush 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 out to the party so that's where it ends we, we it ends with us knowing she's going to she intends to confront him she's not going to sweep it under the rug she's not going to pretend she didn't see it she's not going to hold it for another day she is poised to confront in Mad Men, that counts as a cliffhanger. <laughs> to wait to know this person's gonna gonna open up about it. And I just want to—I love this. This is a little 
tidbit I get, I got from Lisa M. Lilly, who does the, the Buffy podcast. We had her on as a guest, right? Buffy and the art of story. Cause she's, she's actually a, a, an expert in story structure and it is a game changer, not a cliffhanger. Just a little, little, little distinction. Well, cliffhanger in that we end the episode without the resolution. We're still waiting on the end. That's what I mean. We, these things often resolve in 20 minutes. This one is going to tra- traverse the next episode. But also we don't know. We do know that we do surmise that she has a resolve to confront him. But, you know, in life, you go to say that thing and then you, and then you can't bring yourself to say it. Sort of like the way she was yelling at him into the phone. So we don't know yet how she's going to handle well, it. All I'm saying is we know her intent. She's not she's not looking to hold on to it. She's not her intent is to confront him with it you know straight away. That that that's my only point. But I think that's something that is meaningful in terms of knowing where Betty is. So when she's sitting there at the end and stewing and has to sit there and swallow, you know, her feelings uh while everyone's applauding her husband, we know what she's thinking. I want to rip this guy's eyeballs out. And I have to sit here and look, you know, be his be his date. And it's brutal. Something else that's interesting about this episode, though, and it is a though, because while it is this plot based plot, heavy accelerant, it's also completely theme based in like a in like a Grey's Anatomy voiceover. Sometimes people wonder what the color blue means, like it's very unusual. So I don't mean theme in terms of like these big sweeping uh, uh, right. themes about about our characters, but there is a a sort of a central theme, and it's it's curious a little bit that it is the title and that it is like it's that that it's this obvious metaphor. But that said, you go and apply it, and so that's what I did. I watched this viewing all through well, what is this person's interpretation and how, you know, like in, 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 in the view of, do we all see the same color the same way? And it comes up again and again and again. And as we go through, I'm a hit on that. What I didn't do a good job on though, that I, and I'm sure somebody has done it. I'm sure Tom Lorenzo, I'm sure it's covered. Like I couldn't help noticing that Rebecca Price was wearing a blue dress, but yeah, I, there's lots of- I didn't know. I didn't do a lot of costume noting in that way. Although I do have one. We'll get to it. Yeah, there's a lot of just sort of data points. Now, Tom and Lorenzo are the experts at sort of interpreting those data points in the way that a in in the way that a CIA analyst can put together data points and tell us what it all means and who's doing what. So I'm not I'm not at that level. they're they're quite brilliant, but there are just lots of data points that anybody can pick up on. Everything from costumes to lighting, set design. There's blue everywhere in this episode. They're not even hiding it. It's like first of all, Don's robe is blue. Betty's dress is blue at the party, or it has a lot of blue accent, I should say. That bathroom where she's sitting on the edge of the tub, the tile is blue. There's blue lighting. One of the scenes in Don's office, I thought it was when Don was in there, but it must have been Betty because Betty spends time in that office in this episode. It's dark in the room and there's light coming in through the window. It's all shrouded in blue light. So lots of choices that were very obvious and for an episode called The Color Blue are not accidents (laughs) for sure. What does it all mean? What's the unifying theme? Got me. I, I cannot I cannot begin, but totally noticeable and worth worth mentioning for a show that's not always on the nose. <laughs> Rarely on the nose. Anyway, so let's start with with Don and Suzanne, because it's where we almost pretty much begin the episode. First of all, what I notice is she's now she's now full on girlfriend. Right. You know? It's not like what what happened to oh, you're gonna do this and oh I'm gonna like she was calling him out and calling him on his bullshit. I th- now that should tell us a little bit about the character that 
all that other bullshit was, full of was shit. indeed flirting. Was indeed flirting. Yeah, she was completely was full with of the shit. intent of getting him where he is now. Right. And I think in in defense of her, <laughs> I say that slow and I'm you can't see my air quotes. She might have been pretending to herself, like, look at me fighting this off while I'm I guess or whatever. But but it, while, she was while I, I'm proactively trying to lure this man. I think she was more full of shit than than actively manipulative. Well, I think they're both in the service of the same goal. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, she was but that's full of shit because that's gone. That's 100%. That whole gone. dynamic is is gone. And some of what it did as a result made me think it's less the actor and more the writing. There's nothing really to fault her performance, at least certainly not in this episode, which is her biggest episode yet in terms of screen time. I had the same thought. I thought that um the writing and I don't I don't have the of the dialogue open in front of me and I don't have it memorized, but when she, when he first shows up, when he first shows up at her apartment, whatever she says is just like girlfriend template. I think where you can fault the actor is, we were, I just had a discussion about this, about The Handmaid's Tale and how Joseph finds, I think he's bloody awful in this role. I don't know what he used to be. Like, I remember loving him back when I loved him. And now I watch this and it is an empty performance and the guy has no inner life. And I was having a conversation with a couple of people. Um, somebody said, well, but that's the character. Like the character is supposed to be sort of, and I'm like, but that's not how that works. Yeah, sometimes. That's not yeah. how that works, right? <laughs> right. You take, um, you take a blank slate of a character and the right actor fills it in. Well, it's like what Melinda McGraw said, right? I, I, I imagine I'm playing their life story and they're going to watch it, you know? But I do agree. I definitely saw in the script this time, coming back to Suzanne in that apartment, that it really is this like girlfriend template, like, and yeah. things that came out of her mouth just seemed almost like a bot. <laughs> she's, almost, she's almost like written by a bot. And I don't know. It's very flat. I don't know very what flat. their intention was for her other other than that Suzanne is, is pretty. And, you know, like, and he'll say like, you know, those kind of like, who are you and where did you come from? And I know you must. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you just all getting that from the flower wreath from that first time? Like what, <laughs> what it like? She is different. She, I guess she's different, but she doesn't feel different. She's just got these. Again, you say data points. She's got these like data points of like future, future hippiness a little bit, but none of it feels like a person. No, she's kind of some Madonna figure to Don is about it, which means anybody really could have stood in that role. To that point, the fact that she's sort of template girlfriend is kind of perfect for Don right now. I mean, I listen, we go, I can go back to that. <laughs> When I interviewed him, when I interviewed John Hamm was between the second, the 12th and the 13th episode. And he's like, but he loves her. And I was like, does he? <laughs> and, <laughs> and of course, I kept thinking there was going to be a shoe to drop and 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 we weren't doing spoilers. So I'm still like, there's something that you, you're not telling me. <laughs> but there wasn't. <laughs> nope. It was just so John Hamm believed that Don Draper was in love with Suzanne. OK, OK. I never, I don't, I still don't see chemistry between these two people. You know, we started out by wondering whether the problem was the actor or how she was written or drawn and probably a little bit of both in the end. But this one, the writing doesn't really give her much to work with. My favorite example of a role that could be anything and then becomes everything is Robert Sean Leonard on House. That is a sidekick role and he's kind of bland and he has some reactions, but he's one of the greatest actors of his generation and not often known that way. Okay. Maybe I knew him when I was in high school and he was a little younger, but whatever I mean, you really do. You watch that show and that, and, and you, and you, 
picture a lesser actor in that role and you can see it being a lesser role instantly. He just drips with life and she just drips with not life. She just drips with (laughs) waiting for life. I don't know. (laughs) It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just thin. And, and, and again, you know, maybe she could have done more with it, but she wasn't given a lot to work with. It's worth mentioning because it's the color blue title of the episode that she explicitly talks about this exchange with the student about what, you know, is the color blue you see, the student asking her, uh, the same as the color blue I see or that other people see. How do we know? And it's a little little boy question, third grade question, and, and very believable. And she, she gives her answer. And I'm more fascinated with Don's answer, to be honest. I'm more fascinated with her questioning of Don. So she tells that story. And then she says, what would you have said? And there was a little bit of deferring to that, a little bit of like, I want to know what what the man has to say, but it wasn't mostly that. I actually thought it was a very interesting way to probe at who the man is. Like not a bad technique to sort of get to know someone. Like what would you have no, said, right? Without a talk, you know. Right, but, yeah. but it was a good, it was just kind of a good, a good way to get in. And then go ahead, talk about the answer. <laughs> Don's, not, Don, Don's not having any of it. Because <laughs> his response is like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said Charlie was a 41-year-old accountant. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to tell him about 43% of the population sees it this way, and you see it that way, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the fuck, Don? Did you just drop some acid before I before I asked you this question? Like, I can't even call it the worst response, because maybe in some universe it's the best response, but you kind of expect more from Don Draper, creative director at Sterling Cooper. <laughs> I don't know what. Don't you? Yeah. And also like what? <laughs> the fuck does it mean? What the fuck does it mean? Okay. It's like there's what the fuck does it mean if you're really going to say this to a kid, which he wouldn't. We see him talk to kids, but it's like, what is it? What is what's the message he's trying to send to Suzanne? Like, what is he? Where, where where is he just talking to himself? What's going on? The only way I could make any sense of it is, is, you know, if we're to really take it seriously is to sort of say, look, Don's disassociating. Don's. He, he he's disregarding. He knows that this isn't what you say to an eight year old. But and because when he was eight, we've seen him at eight. He was not a n- neither a happy nor loved nor adjusted eight year old. So just saying that, you know, what would you say to that eight year old puts Don, the, the adult, in a very uncomfortable and dark place mentally. So if we're to go there, then Don's answer is sort of meant to not address the real purpose of the question. So Maybe it makes sense that way. And in which case he could have said, um, you know, peanut butter airplanes and and dog poo. <laughs> that would have been just his same response. I mean, I guess I just didn't have the assumption that he's going to go back to eight-year-old Dick Whitman when you've got eight-year-old Bobby at home who he's great with, who Bobby's like, why don't you ask me? And he's like, because your answer is going to be longer. And like, he, he was just great. He was appropriate with. How was school today? Good. How come you never asked me? I do. It's just your answer is always longer, so I thought I would start with Sally. When he wakes up in the same house as Bobby in the morning, he is a great father. Uh, very good. <laughs> All right. Hey. All right. So nonsensical, non sequitur response from Don. And then going back to kind of a couple of things we just said. So if she is using this as an interesting way to get to know him. <laughs> Fail. And he failed. She don't care because she's all in because she's there is no more calling Don on his shit. Talk about a train rolling down the track. She is. She's no longer choosing. She's, you know, everything's fine when you're with me. And blah, blah, blah. like she's oh, when did this happen? It's like it's 
I was hoping for an insightful answer, but I'll take your nonsense just as well. Thank you. I'll take your nonsense and your (laughs) bullshit and I'm all in, honey. And it just as long as we're together and But that also that other exchange of uh, do you ever feel guilty about what you do? And I half expected him to go advertising. No, (laughs) 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 do you ever feel guilty about what you do? And he says, uh, no one will ever feel as good about what they do as you. It's like, whoa, that is some A plus Cooperstown first ballot Hall of Fame deflection. (laughs) Done. That was the line. It was great deflection. It was that thing I was saying where he like randomly admires her somethingness that there's very little evidence for the Madonna thing. Yeah. Like you're this magic. She's, she's he sees her as the magic, the magic pixie, blah, blah, blah. Earth mother. Yeah. And then it's also like answering a different question. Right. Like it's yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah, it was. I hate everything about this affair. It doesn't get better. <laughs> and you're right. I'm seeing different things and it still doesn't get better. Well, no, it, 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 it just makes me look. Rachel, Rachel exactly, happened exactly for what a certain. It makes me Mitch, Rachel, Rachel happened so much. Rachel happened for a reason, and we'd like, and part of it was us projecting onto that relationship as fans. So we we were we're complicit in that <laughs> in that being so perfect. Even Bobby Barrett, as much as as awkward as that was, and out of places that felt happened for a reason. No, but also it was also very interesting to watch. There's nothing interesting here. It was interesting, right? There was a little ping pong. And part of what we're looking at and and that we're trying to not see is the degradation. And that's what we've talked about and, you know, leading up to it, the degradation of we are now fucking a 26 year old a mile from home. And when I say degradation, I mean, like, right, like a, like a literal the standards are are dropping and we're going to progression of his own addiction where he's pretending it's love and sickness. And it just yeah. looks like a template. <laughs> it just- he's not a well person. I mean, this whole, this whole series about Don's not being a well person. Right. So this is very much in keeping with that. It's not as entertaining <laughs> as maybe some other elements of his not being well are <laughs> right. So you just, you get the bad with the good, I guess. The overriding question I think that you and I are grappling with for all of this, for all these issues is, are we supposed to see it that way? Like what I'm seeing color blue, what do we, what, what do we see here? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to be seeing well, Don's in love and sure he lowered his standards, but she's pretty great. And I kind of get this, or am I supposed to be seeing what I'm seeing, what we are seeing, which is this is weird and shallow and a degradation because it's a little subtle. Like it's a little trying to sell me the first. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not, I'm unclear as to what the creator's intentions are. Well, I think we all agree it sucks. It's not really a great part of the season or Don's story or anything else. I do think there is something interesting when looked at from the Don's sickness, Don's uh, state of mind in the most macro sense, right? Going back to the pilot, going forward to, to other things that are going to happen. It makes more sense in that context, but that doesn't make it entertaining. So we'll give a pass on that. But the other thing about this episode with regard to Suzanne that really needs to be discussed, and that I think is far more interesting, honestly, is uh, her brother, Danny, who just pops in, um, as brothers may do, uh, when you've been fired from the library and wherever he was. The relationship is... A believable relationship, right? He's, that's right. He's that, that's... kind of the down and out because he's because he's epileptic and he's had no luck, mm-hmm. and he's also kind of a little bit of a shithead. Did he become a little bit of a shithead because his because his luck yeah. sucks because he's epileptic and and certainly epileptics were treated exactly as he describes. 
at that time. That's right. So 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 here's a likable guy that's that's the sister of this guy that Don's now sleeping with. Inopportune moment as as Kim. And by the way, everything Don said. I think what Don says in that little exchange before they both go out, you know, you didn't you didn't have to answer. You know, I'm staying in here. You know, just get him out of here and I'll leave. You know, that's that's the real Don. That's right. Don doesn't want to meet brothers and relatives and friends. This this isn't we're not sharing our lives together. We're I'm I'm here to hide from everything else. And the minute the the minute the real world comes in, I'm gone. Yeah. Suzanne thinks she's in a relationship with a person. Yeah. <laughs> Who's in a relationship with her. Suzanne is mistaken. And that's the last thing she's in. <laughs> right. Is in a relationship with a person. Um she's in a relationship with a with a with a cardboard cutout virtually. So, so so I so so Don who knows how to get dressed quickly, <laughs> um, skills skills on a resume. <laughs> yeah, has to grin and bear it with the brother, who does not give Don you know an an inch to to maneuver, which is kind of fun to watch. But um, he's a great character, and you just said I just said shithead, and you just said likable, and I think both are right. I'm I'm not both are I, true. Both are true. Hundred percent. Like perfect little brother shit. He's great casting. Uh, a little, um, a little Christian Slater in him that I saw. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Yep. just enough. Yep. And it happens over two scenes, but I'll just, I'll just jump through where, where she gets him the job to go up to Massachusetts to work in yet another, you know, kind of shitty day job that may, you know, is likely to end up just as the other others have as well. He's epileptic. He doesn't last and 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 gets canned. I think he says something about either sweeping floors or mopping floors, right? Yeah. Yeah. And to me, that was that was my that was the Adam connection. Even you know, if if we hadn't Very already much. started to to feel it, because again, Adam Adam wasn't a shithead, so they have this similarness, and also uh, not it's younger brother reaching out for help. Adam did not have any shithead energy, but but Adam was a janitor, and as soon as I heard that, I was like, that's right, this guy feels like Adam, and in a in a somewhat of a way. Let's call it the meek of the earth, right? That's that's kind of where the through line there. And Don instantly sees that, I think, the minute he kind of gets wind of what of what this is about as the younger brother for, for Danny and results in him deciding to take Danny up to this new job up in Massachusetts. And, you know, in a great Mad Men dialogue, which is, you know, where, where so much is presumed before the first character opens their mouth, you know, they quickly get to the point of like, look, Don, you don't have to drive up to fucking wherever the fuck Massachusetts Uh you could drop me off. I'm going to give you the slip anyway. Let's be honest, right? And that's Danny's, again, likable, right? We appreciate that kind of honesty. And ultimately convinces Don to like pull over to the side of the road. Now, I, I want to stop there for a second. Even if Don sympathizes with Danny about the plight before they have the conversation, which I'll get to in a second, even if he sympathizes and says, yeah, you know, you're right. <laughs> right? The fuck are we doing? Take him to a bus station. Take him to a something, the side of the fucking road. He could get squished like a grape. Like, why, why does he actually do that? I don't know. It just maybe that's just convenient yeah, plotting, and let's get move on with it. But I thought that was so goofy. Uh, yeah, it, dramatic without like. W- I mean, wouldn't he? Wouldn't Danny just be like? Could you just? I mean, I get this, and you're right. But there is a bus station like two miles yeah, up. Yeah, same conversation, right. but don't. Not here. We're on like a fucking. Drop me out of Howard Johnson's with. with yeah, we're on County Road 211 here, Pat. <laughs> like, I'm going to get. I'm going to hope to, you know, hitch a ride or something. And maybe that was the thing. Hitch a ride because people did that then. Who the fuck knows? But I still find that a little, you know, a little unbelievable. But the conversation 
that they have, which I don't think I really understood the first time through uh, watching originally, but I, I caught a lot more of it now, which Danny points out that Don isn't interpreting this correctly. <laughs> it's not a, you know, I pull, pull myself up on my bootstraps and let me just make a go of it. He's like, no, 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 I, that, we're past that. I, he says, I'm afflicted. And he says, it's not a question of will, Don. I'm not you, which is, how, of course, how Don interprets it. Right, rightly, right? That, that is the connection. I can't overcome this. This isn't something I can just work through. I have to deal with it however I deal with it. Yeah. And that, to me, was sort of the, the, when we talk about some thematic elements, and this is a new one. We don't really see this a lot on it. This isn't one of the big overarching themes or things that recur a lot. But this question of what does it mean when you cannot make yourself well is a very scary thing because Don, okay, so that is the overarching thing for Don. How, how, am I, how do I make myself well? He's constantly self-medicating for, for decades here, the, this character, Don Draper. Yes, there is the question of making yourself well, but there's also the question of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and station in life and privilege and who gets to succeed and who doesn't. And that certainly is an overarching theme. This is a detail of that that we haven't yeah. looked at. And also just the, the color blue looking, look at perspective from Don's perspective, from Suzanne's perspective, this, this is a kid who is trying and he's going to succeed. And, yeah, and if and we she'll do, never stop helping, she'll him. never stop yeah. helping. And if he just, if he just gets the chance he needs, he'll, he'll be okay. I don't think Suzanne's delusional in that regard. I don't think she's thinking Danny's going to, today he's a janitor, then next he's an assistant manager, then he's running the plate. Like, that's not what she's saying she's at all. She's not, but she also doesn't see the shithead side. I don't think they're not aligned. I think she and Danny are quite aligned, at least on the face of it. Now, they're not aligned in the sense that Danny's not even going to get to the new job. <laughs> like, he's had it. They're not aligned in his resignation. And his resignation, you know, is appropriate in a lot of ways. I mean, resignation right. is a natural state of life. But he's not even willing to give the honest work that's clean and good grounds and all the thing, you know, and, and a regular paycheck, he's even beyond giving that a shot, right? Because he because he doesn't go. But um, Suzanne is still thinking, I have to get him that next place where he can just exist and make the best of it that he can. But he's actually not there. She's realistic about what his prospects are, but she's not realistic about who he is at this point in his life. Right. Okay. Yeah, I see that. That's That's true. She doesn't see that he has no fucking interest in trying again, whatever the reason, the humility, the humiliation, the anger, he's done. He is just going to like make his way out there, like be in the drug yeah, world, whatever, he's, whatever on the margins, he's doing, yeah. whatever he's up to, he's and he's going to keep doing that and then show up at her door every once in a while for some money and for some love. Both, you know, I think he loves his sister. And. I think he saw. I think he saw Don a little oh bit. Oh my god! Like, he Don, saw him from Don, the second. He's like laid eyes on him. Saw, yeah. He he, and so he was like he he had that bit of recognition of of you. Here's another hustler. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not who you say you are either. For sure. And so I'm not gonna lie. And we're we're gonna be men about this, and we're done. Yeah, I, I have nothing to be pretentious about about me yeah. about you. I'm gonna. I'm going to call you out, which maybe that is a family trait if she was slightly, slightly genuine in the past. But but yeah, but but this exchange about, you know, with with another ancient Rome reference thrown in Caesar, but this affliction that he refers to, I mean, it's a real it's a real metaphor within the show and maybe a little bit within this episode only. But 
but I, I do love how it just kind of pops up and it seems so out of place, but when you really look at it, it fits. It fits exactly as it's presented. And that's really great. I didn't see that the first time and I see it now and it's a, it, it makes the episode very rich for me. Now he's a great actor. Like that guy, <laughs> one <laughs> and done, you know, you take right. like, that's a whole person right there. It is. It a really whole is. whole person right there. Totally. I agree. I agree. So I'm still waiting for Susanna to be one, but whatever. <laughs> She's <laughs> fine. Maybe I'm too hard on her. And there was a lot at the time, Sopranos reference one, of is this going to be a famous Sopranos episode where two characters are actually, uh, two characters are fleeing these Russian mobsters down in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey and South Jersey. And the two Russian mobsters more or less run away, disappear into the forest. We never see them again. And it was, I don't know, halfway, a third of the way through the whole run of the series. So the whole rest of the time, you're thinking, oh, my God, these Russian mobsters are going to come back and, like, whack these guys or something. So, like, every every season, it seemed, there was another theory about the Russian mobsters coming back. We didn't see them die. We didn't see them freeze to death. They're, they're out there somewhere. And it was like, oh, this is what's going to come back. So Don giving the card to Danny was one of these things. I saw it, you know, in a few places at the time and it always stuck with me of, oh, this guy's got Don's card. He's going to he's going to get picked up for something on the side of the road and they're going to find Don's card and it's going to all come back. But that never happened either. So, yeah, we also we also spend the rest of the series wondering when we're going to see Sal, Adan- Sal again. Yeah. Keep waiting. All right. So let's take a break. We will come back and talk more about the color blue. Sounds good. Hey, we're back. So listen, guys, quick, exciting announcement. We actually had a sit-down exclusive interview with Talia Balsam, who plays Uh Mona Sterling, Roger's wife, on Mad Men. And she was wonderful and lovely and just an amazing, amazing interview, as you can imagine. So we have that in the can, so to speak, and going to be getting that ready for an upcoming episode. So please stay tuned for our conversation with Talia Balsam. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait for you to hear it. She's, um, she's really like legacy Hollywood and she has that sort of unaffected, uh, way about her as somebody who was, you know, the child of, of, of legends. And she's been doing this for a very long time. She's been doing this for, (laughs) she's just so like, I think what was the, there was something she said about, well, yeah, it was a Talia Balsam role. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, You know, Exactly. That's just great. Exactly. No, she's a she's a pro in every conceivable way you can mean that word, and she's wonderful and phenomenal. And I think our listeners and fans of the show are going to like just be doing backflips over this conversation because she was great, and I think we got some cool stuff out of her too, which was which was fun to to really go into. So coming soon. Keep your ears open. Okay. So one of the other really cool parts of this episode, I think, and we we mentioned this a number of times, how wonderful Mad Men is at really illustrating in real terms the creative process, just what the real world look at the creative process is like, what it's like to be in the trenches with it, what it's like to go through it, what you're thinking, how you get from here to there. And this episode really takes us on a journey with that, almost for its own sake. We're not here to learn really about the characters. We're not here to see something different or some account that's going to change the way the the firm works or the characters relate. It's really for the sake of showing the creative process. And I love, 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 love it because they they do it 
spot on here. I don't think there's any show that does it quite like this. So there's the Aquanet pitch where they're pitching to Don their creative idea of the two couples in the in the convertible with the the hairspray and the the scarf covering and all this, which was really fun, wasn't it? I loved it. I thought Yeah. <laughs> it was the thing where um like another one of Paul's plays. I can't remember exactly what the line was, but I was like, <laughs> "Oh lord, how many how many times has Paul <laughs> Has Paul staged yeah. something or done something or whatever? Too many. However, whatever the number is, too many. Don, if you could stand over there. It's Paul Kinsey Theater. So they have this little setup with the front seat passenger and driver and back seat passenger and driver. And um, they go through the little skit, right? And, you know, it's really just X's and O's. It's like, will this play on TV? How is the story being told? Do we have to say all that every time you say, and then, you know, I'm losing you? And it's just a really great kind of nitty gritty of, of how stuff gets gets molded for for a pitch. And it was really fun to watch it. It was really cool. It was vibrant because it was being acted out. It was, and you, but you also saw it go from like a, an initial idea. Here's our concept. We could do this. We can try that. And Don immediately moves the ball forward. Well, you need to do this, or well, we need some of that, or we could ditch that whole thing, or you know, we don't need that line. We can. So there's this constant molding and sculpting of paring down the idea to 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 what its essence is, and they finally come up with something somewhat different than they started with, and that's kind of the point: is that this thing that probably seemed inevitable when you watch it in final form took this somewhat roundabout way to get there, which is great. At first, as it's as we're watching this, I'm thinking, well, there's Don. It looks like it's Don being brilliant, but sometimes it's just Don being fresh. You know, yeah, Peggy, 100%. Peggy could be, could have been Don. The four other people could have come into the room and she could have asked because he's just he's asking questions. Well, what's Objective. that for? Yeah. And what's this? You know, when you're in it, when you're creating it, it just you feel you're in it. <laughs> you know, and objectivity is sometimes the best thing. No, it's collaboration. It's pure collaboration is what we see. And as somebody noted, <laughs> I do remember this from the vlog, <laughs> that he's sitting there eating the date nut bread that Suzanne made. Oh, he's got the, is he? the napkin open and he's eating. And they're like, oh, how perfect that Suzanne would make a date nut bread because she's a date and she's a nut. <laughs> it's also date nut. It's also, it's again, it's that little bit of pre-hippie. Date nut bread. A little. Started I think selling it's more funny in stores. To say she's a date and a nut. Sure, but, yeah. but it also it also became really popular in the seventies, and it was yeah. sort of out of the yeah tippy chick stuff. Like it was yeah. a homogenization of of the organic movement, and and again, she's kind of she's a little bit of ahead of, a little bit ahead of her time. Yeah, from the woods well, or whatever. They, she's putting but it down. That's very Don's, funny. Don's soaking it up. Oh, by the way, we should mention she follows him on the train to work. Okay, too, so all right, we got to talk about this. this. <laughs> And but by the way, I will not entertain any explanation that is not batshit bonkers for her to do that. Uh, all right, so I'm going to no no well, no. well okay. No, so is this whole podcast over, or do yes, we get to debate? My mind is closed to this discussion. It's interesting because that was certainly, you know, between the drunk dialing and that as two data points, it sure as shit felt like crazy stalker stuff. And I don't know, man. One of those people called the house and nobody, knew, we don't know who, or nobody did, right? It could have really Both been. Denied it. Yeah, oh, it happens right. all the time. Yeah. Uh, that was very, that was the other scene we watched. We were outside mm -hmm. of the house when that phone rang and uh, kept ringing and they kept answering it, uh, or they kept not answering it rather. Watching that freshly, and this is, this is 
the rare evidence that I can be a little bit objective, speaking of objectivity. When I watched the episode and she gets on that train, it didn't freak me out as much. I mean, this was the thing that had me debating it with John Hamm because I was like, she's fucking stalking crazy. Who does that? But, you know, I mean, we grew up without cell phones, so it's not like we don't understand the lack of cell phones. But there is a she thinks she's his girlfriend and that he's her boyfriend and he's the same boyfriend on the train who desperately wants her showing up. Not not that she thought he desperately wanted her to show up, but she doesn't understand Don's uh, barriers in, in terms of like, this is my life here, and this is my life here, and this is my life here, and this is my life here. You're right? dating a married man. She's an idiot. You know that. I'm not saying- Yeah. But she, you know- but Those aren't just Don's barriers. Those are the barriers. But the train isn't, which, which, which you know, to your point, when Don is, wakes up in his house, he's good to Bobby. She doesn't have an understanding of who Don is on the train. Which one is he? So she couldn't reach him. She's concerned of whatever she's concerned with. She's not going to call him at work, although the service has her number, right? How about that? The answering service has her number. I was going to mention that. The the service, he gave the service his girlfriend's Gumar's number. So, I mean, I just think. (laughs) No, I'm not there. I just could see it without it being the worst, craziest thing you could do. I don't like her. I want to think she's crazy. Crazy is not a fair word, but whatever. I want to think she's, but when they're together, the words exchanged are, "I want to be with you," da, 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 like you're it, you're everything. Back and I'm and I'm not I'm not scripting it. Either of those are saying either one of those people are saying those things, and she's like, okay. well, "Yeah, I it, this is how to talk to him." And I I know it's an extreme measure, but it's not like a psycho extreme measure. It's just I got to talk to him and there's, that's where he's going to be. And I'll get off at the next stop. And, and, and he wasn't that offended because of course he doesn't have good boundaries either, but I'm just, they don't have a lot of options. She can't call him. She's not going to show up. She she didn't show up at his door. She didn't show up at his office. It was one night that he said he'd call and didn't. I'm going right to the train. This is my last, this is all I got. This is all I can do is go to the train. I can wait another night. No, he can't wait another night. I don't he know. Might, she left. He left know? with his. What's the te- what's the actual timeline? What's the what are the events? It was after the first time this brother showed up. When he left, when he left, uh, right after Danny showed up, they were in bed together. Danny showed up and he just left. And then he stays over the next night. Danny stayed over that night, and Don the next night is when he dropped to takes him in his car. So it was the first time Danny showed up, and he goes, "Yeah, you know, I'll." I'll, I'll call you. And he doesn't call because he can't go home, <laughs> by the way. Or maybe he can. Who the hell knows? The point, well, he did, obviously, because he was on the train. But but the point is, it was one night that she was freaking out about. And you don't, I don't understand what the freak out was. The freak out was he left and she doesn't understand why he left. All right. Well, then she doesn't understand who she's dating or what it's. Yeah, she does. She uh, that's But that's been the whole point. She doesn't understand who she's dating at all. She thinks she has a boyfriend. And and he saw her brother and ran away. And now she's unsettled and having a freak out. You're, you're, it sounds like you're sort of defending that it's a reasonable thing to do. And it's not a reasonable thing to do. I'm sort of defending. It's weird because this is, I, I 100% in, the, in my original viewings of this back at the time was like, she's a psycho stalker. But I have since come around to, it's not great. <laughs> But 
there's not that many options and she's trying or she again she's not knocking on his at his door she's not showing up at his office this was kind of a big deal the brother shows up and don runs away and she's like ugh like no she didn't wait a week <laughs> i will grant you i'm not again i'm not saying it's reasonable i just don't i don't necessarily think it's that she's uh, you know she's one train right away from boiling a bunny i just i i think i think there's something in between here okay that i I'll go with that. There's something in between here and boiling a bunny. <laughs> it's another extreme data point, but that's fine. That's all right. We're just interpreted a little differently. I'm that's not all right. solidly in the camp of it's fine. I just can. I just this time I, I know, really you're not can advocating see. It. You're not right. You're not a proponent no, of this. But I could. It made more sense to me in this viewing. I really was. I really was more open minded, and I looked and I was like, oh, all right. I mean, there's just okay. not a lot of choices. She's just home. She can't call him. This is her boyfriend in her mind. And and according to everything he's said, and we know what he says, someday we'll be together the whole time. You know, we know what he says. Or he yeah. says, let's not think about it, but you're, you're everything. You know, we know how he talks to her. I know. All right. <laughs> I get it. I, I really do. I, I see what you're saying. I'm just, when it, to me, when I added, when I still add it all up, all of that, it's still an inappropriate thing to do in 1963. Maybe. And here's the last piece. The other thing is he didn't keep his word and she's holding him to account. You said you'd call me tomorrow. You didn't. Okay. That's the only way to hold him to account. What are his, I mean, what are I'm not against holding him choices? to account. What are her other choices? To wait another day or so and see if he calls. Because it was an unusual situation that he had to maneuver around. That's all. Was he going to call, call her from his house when he goes the home? A man can get out and make a phone call. There are phone booths. Or he calls okay. when she, somebody's asleep, whatever. How has he been calling her every okay. other time? He calls the service and sends a message to her. I don't know how he calls. That's not, again, I'm not sold. She's but that's holding okay. him to we account. We disagree. How do I know if what I see is blue is the same as it is to you? So we had been talking about this creative process exploration within the episode. And the other part of that is after the Aquanet pitch, and this part I felt was a touch contrived, where... I guess Peggy had this idea on top of Paul's idea that helped move the process along within that cre uh, Aquanet discussion. And then they go back into Peggy's office and Paul's all pissed off. And he said, and I remember Matt Weiner saying that this was actually said to him once. This was a verbatim the swirl, the quote swirl from line. real life. Why you had to go put your swirl on top of my idea, which he said someone told him. I love that. I love that pick up and that attention to something someone else says. Well, the whole, the whole thing, the whole you. way that it plays out and, and as we get into it, but it's all so, it was all clearly from being, the experience of being a writer. Every bit of, of how this plays out was, 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 was so clearly like a love letter to like the fucking process. That's precisely <laughs> like, what it is. Yeah. Truly, it's it's people who love this process and go through it. And, you know, in many professions, you go through some version of it. There, there's all kinds of ways of going through a creative process, usually for business, right? It's got to come down to someone buying in or or uh, accepting it and signing off. So so this is very common in many, not, not just advertising. So when he comes in and he's ticked off and he's a swirl, he, he says, all right, now we have to go come up with something for Western Union. And we're going to, you know, it's now a competition. Let the chips fall where they may, which is like, we don't, that, I don't expect that a madman. That's way too, <laughs> feels like a sitcom. This was another color blue thing. 
she says it's not a competition and he says yes it, and then he says that so that was another just another little uh you see the color blue this way i see the color blue this way they're just totally different interpretations of what's going on yeah no it just seems hacky for paul's for hacky to your and you're not wrong Right. Well, that is Paul's true. Hacky. They've created yeah. a hacky character, so we can't complain when he does hacky things. A couple, couple things here. So now we see them both working late, right? And we're we're now in the throes of the creative, in the trenches of the creative process. Peggy is dictating into the microphone and belches. <laughs> that's ha- that's how intimate with the creative process we are getting, and it's not there. Lightly, I don't think. I think it's very much there to say this is, we are, this is unvarnished and the mask is off and the gloves are off and grab the tums. It's it's you know? all the different things <laughs> that can happen as you're creating. It's not just pure it's flow. To- it's pure flow, right? It's just, you know. How, how the sausage exactly. get made, you know, and, and that's that's what it is. So I, I just love that, that little piece of it. Because again, that's a choice. You didn't have to put that in there, but they did. And it's a thing. Um with Paul, first of all, they're both in the office working late. Now, the presumption is if you're not in the office, you're not working. Nowadays, I don't know that you would have two people, even creatives, who are not in the same room collaborating that need to do this together, that would be in their offices, you know, separate corners doing their work this way. I'm not saying it wouldn't happen. It couldn't happen. But more often than not, it's like, all right, I'm going to go home. I've got my yoga class and I've got this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to spend some time tonight thinking about it. And I'm going to, you know, you get the work done, but you're never quite, and we already know Peggy's always working the way Don's always working. It's not like these people are punching a clock, but this idea that I can only do my work here, this work gets done here. If I'm actually going to sit down and, and formally create, be creative about this client and this pitch and this job I have in front of me. I have to be here. And I find that I found a little in the subtext of that. uh, Maybe I'm looking into it a bit much, but I found that interesting on that level that these are two people who are quote unquote at work. I mean, she's got her dictaphone. Part of it is equipment. We know, we know that he has a typewriter at home. I also wonder how he's traveling late at night. I mean, he didn't, he stayed on the couch, crashed in the office, but the the trains the buses and train actually are there are there buses and you know it's like in 1963 is there is there a night is there a 24 hour bus bus line to Montclair I don't know the answer Probably. to that but but no but you're right it is interesting because certainly today in 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 19 I just did that certainly today in 2021 everybody's relationship with working from home has changed pandemic notwithstanding but pandemic notwithstanding you're right you you stay late as a team to get a project out right if there's a reason and to these guys right. but you're right there's also a lot of the creative collaboration so as a project manager i would have everybody stay together when we were trying to get move something through the process and get it out the door so we were we were mm. you know the 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 to keep it very simple we already had the ad now we're just like, we're looking at the art, it's routing through the team, it's got to go several rounds, make sure everybody has approved it, and then we can all go home. And then some of that would happen remotely too, but you would try to have the whole team there because that would speed it up and it's already midnight. Yeah. And in the 90s, you you may or may not have had a laptop where you could do work. So if you were working on your computer, everything was at right, the right, office. Right. Like that's, you know, a little dated and, still. And again, she does have her dictaphone. And I don't know if that's something she would take home with her. Yeah, there's just that formality. So I don't know. I don't know if it was. Yeah. 
Like I said, it's worth mentioning because yeah, I think it's interesting. About maintaining the formality the, 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 or, and, or you just really don't ever work at home or if they were just doing it for the, yeah. for the sake of this episode. That's a good question. Who That's knows? That's a good one. You know, um, because Peggy didn't have to be there. There is, there is a reason for Paul to be there plot wise, right? Well, which we'll talk about. But Peggy, yeah, she has the burp and we could have seen. We could have done that elsewhere. Um, but anyway, Paul uh, uh, goes in. He's frustrated. He pulls out his one good idea that he ever had, which was made in form. To yeah, I was looking inspired. at I loved that. He pulls that out. You could have missed. You could have blinked and missed it. He pulls that yeah. out. Like, the, the, yeah. that was the day. <laughs> that the good was old the good days. old day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The good old day. Right. And he wanders into the break room and Achilles, great name, the janitor is fixing a light bulb. And he starts talking with Achilles. And if you, and he, Paul starts rummaging around the fridge. Now, if you ever have any doubts as to whether Paul Kinsey, the character, is a horrible person, you only need to realize that he grabs food with someone else's name on it in the fridge, on that bag. I forget if it's like Andy or Andrea or Amy or whatever it is. But he's, he's that, that guy. guy. He's that guy that takes something that does not belong to him when no one realizes he's going to take it, whether it's a typewriter or food sitting in the fridge in the office. Number one. Number two, he gets this idea, you know, this flash of inspiration from this conversation with Achilles. And we're not meant to know what the idea is. We're meant to only realize that Paul genuinely thinks this is a terrific idea. And because Paul has had one good idea in his life, maybe he has a second. So let's assume it is indeed a terrific idea that's worthy of the Western Union campaign and going to make everybody happy and make make the firm money. He goes into his office, completely impressed with himself, does not write it down, and drinks himself to sleep on his couch. And then wakes up, of course, and cannot remember the idea. The whole thing to me felt like trying to remember a dream. So what we don't know, and we're never going to know, is, you know, it was almost like he's in a dream state at this point. It's quite late at night and he's quite drunk. And he has the threads of the idea, which doesn't mean he has a, he has a line, which and I, I love how Don had distinguished between that, you know, that's that's not a that's yeah, that's a tagline, tag not an that's idea. Not a and concept, that's a right. that's a tough one to learn. Right. And this is where, you know, when Pete or the client comes in with like, what if we say it like this? It's like you flick that person away because it's. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've had dreams where like something is brilliant. And then when you try to say it, you're like, oh, I see this makes no sense. So we don't even know if his one great idea would even make sense. Like, because to me, it felt like a few, like, the, like it just felt it, like that dream thing where you're like, there was, there, if there's a, if there's a squirrel and float. Yeah. If you don't capture it in the moment. Right. It's and we gone. don't, but we don't even know. Like that's, I don't even, we know. don't even know, like I, I believe that the brilliance was there, but is the brilliance something that if you wrote it down in words from this, from point A to point B to point C, could you even get to point C? We don't, we'll, and we'll never know. Let's assume you could. We'll never know. Like I said, we don't know the quality of the idea, but he's had one good idea in his life. Maybe he just had a second. Idea, like you that's, know. <laughs> I, we haven't seen it, but this might be the second. The point is that we're not meant to know all those things that you're asking. We're meant to only see that he was inspired and it could lead to something else. It could be a total turd when he gets it articulated. Who knows? But he he he, he had a breakthrough. He broke through that problem he couldn't break through before, but he did it. And so 
we get in there and he wakes up the next morning and the whole thing with Lois, of course, Lois is now on his desk, which is, that's Lois a whole spinoff of the show. Lois has a job and she's on Paul Kinsey's <laughs> right. desk. Apparently rolling, d- dismembering a, cl- uh, a member of the senior staff is not a fireable offense, just so you know. <laughs> that whole Lucy Desi scene uh, takes place with them trying to find something and he's miserable. And, the, and what I love is a couple, couple different things. First of all, Peggy comes in and all right, you're ready to go. And he has to admit that he had this idea, didn't write it down. And, you know, she doesn't gloat. No. She doesn't, you know, she's she says, incredibly sympathetic that. within. I hate that. We're in this we're in this process together. We were in competition. You thought we were, this was a competition, but we both need each other's good ideas to come up with the best thing for the client and to succeed. And oh, I hate when that happens. I'm, I'm with you, man. It was wonderful. You. That's what I mean by the love letter. That's right. 100%. Neither of them said, sure, Paul. <laughs> right, exactly. N- neither of them said that or thought it. They both went, "Oh God, that's the fucking worst. We've all done it." There was there was real empathy for his plight, and and they could have berated him or called him shit or whatever, but uh, but they sympathized instead or empathized. I think it was actual empathy because we've all been there. Damn it, Kinsey, what's your excuse? Don't yell at him. Excuse me. Tell him what happened. No. The dog ate my homework. I had a great idea and I lost it. I didn't write it down. I hate when that happens. Then we get in there and Peggy's got her idea and we kind of hear the tail end of it, I guess. And it doesn't sound, frankly, all that amazing. It sounds like maybe a B to B plus idea, let's say. She doesn't see, Don doesn't respond as, you know, jumping out of his chair. Then over to Paul, who has to say, dog ate my homework, blah, blah, blah. And everyone's kind of commiserating. But then Peggy jumps right in. And here's the thing. She's not piggybacking her own idea. She's not furthering her own creative thought. She's, oh, what's that thing you said? The faintest ink, blah, blah, blah. And jumps on it. And they do a little mini thing. And honestly, they don't, I wouldn't even say they go back and forth. She and Don go back and forth. <laughs> Paul is still <laughs> incapable of really contributing productively to a creative conversation. Well, Paul, but- Paul is now, Paul now gets Peggy. And he's like, if you're viewing, if he's viewing this as a competition, he now knows who the loser is because he <sighs> suddenly sees what Peggy is doing that he doesn't do. Correct. That's <laughs> exactly right. If there, if there is a takeaway, it's that. Correct. A thousand percent that. So so he recognizes Peggy as a genuine, creative, uh, valuable member of the creative team, better than he is, frankly. I think he sees and, that. And better, better than most. He hasn't seen many people do what she just did. He, he did have that original line of the faintest ink is better than the best memory, but he, he never in a million years would have taken it to the next level, which is what he she did. He didn't think of using it. Yeah, it, meant, it didn't inspire him. He just was lamenting. And then she and Don are going back and forth, ping pong, and- Go with that. There it is. You can't frame a phone call or whatever, you know, the couple of And it of really was things. so good. Yeah. The, the, as a viewer, you instantly, it's like, it's like in movies where um, there's a pop song that's supposed to be like a really good pop song. And lots of movies are like Crazy Heart had this or- um, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? Uh, I don't From know From The that Stand? One. You never mm. read The Stand? You never read no, Stephen King's Stand? Of, um, no. The guy was compared. No. It was a. It was, anyway, it was a big hit. Right. It was the last big hit before before the world shut down, okay. and it was very in the. It was in the Bruce Springsteen. But it's a. But it's a bit. It's a hit in a fictional universe, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, same as um, Star is Born, right? Things like this. In so, the shallow. <laughs> yeah, that right. one. Yeah, just, 
that's the one. This parallel universe. So in the same kind of vein, uh, you can't frame a phone call instantly rings out to the viewer as, wow, that really is. I could see that. I could totally see that. That's a great concept, Western Union or whatever. So we we immediately identify that this creative process has borne really nice, sweet fruit and boom. But Paul's a little bit on the outside. Peggy and Don are very much on the inside of this process. And off we go. So that is a is a capper to this whole thing we've seen since the Aquanet performance of not just Peggy's process, but the process at large, right? Think of it deeply, then forget about it, then come back. All these things that we've been hearing all along the way um, from these characters about the process, we see condensed into this episode. So you can't really enjoy this episode without seeing that. My There's opinion. also the other the the other color blue piece just inside what we've just discussed. Paul saying you're Don's favorite to Peggy, and Peggy saying, "What are you talking about? Don hates me." And that's been the that's been her experience this whole season, yeah. right? My boss is a jerk, and you could see right. you could see both of those perspectives. Um, and right. then you start to see that little bit of magic again between Don and Peggy. Right. Because I creating. never say no. You always say no. Exactly. Right. But that, again, <laughs> yeah. just to play out the the sort of. Yeah. No, those are all, they all connect. The color blue theme. Carla. Are you feeling all right? I'm fine. I want you to take the children to the park. Don't come home. Just, uh, just dinner time would be perfect. Take them to the library. Betty in the drawer. This was a place where I really noticed the costume too. Betty was um Betty looked really beautiful as Betty tends to look, but she's now wearing pants. You know, <laughs> she that's and, you know, she's she's got that little bit of <laughs> That's funny, I didn't notice. Yeah, there there I mean and that's fair, right? So it's, it's you know, edging toward the end of 1963 and and women are starting to wear pants, but Betty Betty you know, sort of Betty. I mean, I guess Betty wears pants before Don takes his hat off because I think Don takes his hat <laughs> off in 1985. But, yeah. um, but she's wearing, um, I think, uh, black and red. She's definitely not wearing blue. Let's put it that way. She's wearing a tracksuit. No, she's wearing, uh, she's wearing black and red, uh, maybe houndstooth or buffalo check or something like that, and a and a gray sweater. And you know, in the, in the Betty universe, that's as dressed like a man as you're gonna see. <laughs> right. right. Um, there's no there's no girly affect there. And there's no, like I said, and there's no blue. It was just noticeable mm-hmm. that like in the moment that she she opens that drawer and makes this discovery. Um, yeah. And I guess what it had been in his robe. The keys had been in his robe pocket. And so she finds it doing laundry. He was putting the money in from his bonus into his uh, into the drawer that he okay. got. You know, yeah, Don yeah, goes yeah. to the bank. Goes to the bank and like a hobo says, give it to me in cash. 5K again. It's- give it to me in cash. I have to I have to put it under my mattress. I have to bury it in the backyard. I have to put it in yeah, my drawer. But that's also another little t- uh, throwback to Adam. There's that, there's that $5,000 again. Well, he's replenishing. <laughs> he's replenishing the coffers. That's a definite echo. We've got, we've got some, we've got some very specific Adam echoes. I mean, he's we, more 5G yeah. uh, in this episode. And he's, and just to go back, he said it. I myself I would try to do this right once. Do what? I want you to call me if you ever need to. And I want you to remember if something happens to you, your sister will never forgive herself. You're not going to tell her, are you? That I let you out 20 miles outside of Framingham? <laughs> Thank you. 
Take care. So she gets that drawer open. And the first thing she sees is a ton of cash. And she just doesn't care about that. Like, she's like, of course, I think, I think what I, here was what I saw. What I saw was this drawer was filled with exactly what she sort of thought the drawer would be filled with. Her, God, her acting was amazing. January Jones's mm. face was amazing. But she sees that money and it doesn't even, like, it's exactly what she expected. There's money, there's a box, there's weird things, there's secrets, there's secrets revealed. But it matches mm. essentially her suspicions. And her suspicions are vague, they're undefined, and this is sort of kind of in the realm of what she might have been expecting. Secret life, Secret past life, life, past life, past wife, dirty life. Like maybe, maybe she, maybe she. Another family somewhere. Maybe another family, right. right. Maybe she didn't. Again, you don't flesh those things out. Your imagination goes all over and you Correct. know that you don't know what's in there. But right. um, dirtier past than, than, you know, like not dirty, like dingier, right? Dingier childhood. And yeah. But did she expect a whole sep- second name and two dog tags? No, I don't think she did. And then what takes her out is the divorce. And and right. here, here's what I don't think it's so much a matter of, oh, my God, there was a wife I didn't know about. I think it was much more a matter of there's just so much he's been hi- like the depth of what he's been hiding from me is is just is grander, is huge. It's just that I think that was the sucker punch. Like this is a woman who knows there are other women. But like, I'm sorry, there was a there's like two sets of dog tags and like a whole other marriage. And there was a divorce. And look at the date on that divorce. It's five minutes before you married me. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, this has been, I think that's part of it too. The date, you know, a divorce, a divorce degree is going to be dated, right? Uh, I, I, boy, that did. That was it. That was the one. Whew. Yeah, we're, we're not at the point yet where we can totally understand, where we totally know how she's processing this. Again, we know that she's going to confront him. We're not, we're not confused about we know, that. She, we know she wants to. That's correct. That's her intention. So she's willing to, she's going to talk to him and presumably get his version of whatever this is. But at this point, I think that the divorce certificate was certainly the thing that knocked her off her feet. But we also don't know the extent to which she will cherry pick what it is that's disturbing her. Like she could throw the box at Don and say, explain this. Give me every, give me, give me the story that ties all of this together, right now. And you could, the, the the truth actually would tie all that together in a pretty amazing way, and you could believe it or not. But Don does not have to make something up. It's it's all there. It all happened, and he could he could pull it. Um, but she at the moment is left to choose which dots to connect. Or not, right? She doesn't. She doesn't seem to spend too much time on the pictures. Does she go? Does she look through all of them and see that he's called Dick in half the pictures or all the pictures? The first one says. She, the first one says Dick. The did war, she look at that? Yeah, the she turns it, it around, says Dick and Adam. Oh, she did. Okay. Now at that point, maybe she's not clear who yeah. that is. But at some, but at some point, it starts right. to. It he starts changed to, his name. Was that what he was called when he was young? I knew nothing about his childhood anyway. No, so, but she, I mean, there's but, there's know. a lot more in there, and then there's the two dog tags. Right. But I don't think she, I don't think this becomes a, a point of rage until she sees the divorce certificate. Yeah. 
That's that's you know. just what that's what breaks it all loose. I mean, she's again, this is Correct. this this drawer is in sync with whatever her vague sort of like Paul's dream <laughs> dream state, right? It's enough like to, she's it's sort enough of to confirm gone, enough of yeah, her. Yeah, there's there's she has suspicion. ideas, she has this creative concept, but she didn't write it down. But if she had written it down, it would have been a lot like <laughs> right. this drawer. Right? Yeah, but yeah, but then yeah. but to see it and to see it and each piece gets worse and worse and then that the divorce just that was the one. I think if she had opened a drawer and found one divorce certificate, it wouldn't have had the same effect. But it it just in the progression of all that she's learning right now, she has been suspicious that this guy has a lot of secrets, that there yeah. isn't just five thousand dollars in this drawer, that there's other stuff. Right. And and it just that was the that was the that was Jenga. Well, it's the one sort of um self-explanatory data point that's in there. Cause there are all these other these data points for her, the house, pictures, dick, what dog tags, a lot of that, you know, are just sort of random in and of themselves. A divorce statement says you were married to someone <laughs> who presumably you had a full on relationship with that I don't know about. And that all by itself is something, uh, you know, that's going to send me over who the Who you divorced five minutes before you married yeah, me. The whole- you could put all that together and you'd be right on paper. And you'd wild you, you, th- th- that this is now she's now, though, the dog that caught the rabbit at the track. Right. She's been chasing, 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 finally gets it. Now what? And what's going to happen? What are we going to do? do? Now, what are we going to do? Right. I'm going to sit with my glass of wine and Don doesn't come home. And that's the the element of the cliffhanger. That's that's till till the next. And week. that great that great that great phone call. <laughs> what's wrong? What's wrong? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> she's like Betty Betty, I'm in a creative meeting. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta gotta get going. It's true. And 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 her her acting is unbelievable. And we could just take it right to that evening with, with the party. The way the camera just sits on her and you know what she's thinking and she's stewing and she's boiling and she's on display. She's in this fishbowl up on the dais. She has to listen to all these wonderful things about this man. She's absolutely perfectly gorgeous, and we ah. we I, we did meet her. We had we very briefly met her on set, um, and she was in that that whole getup because it was again it was that ba- it was that bedroom and bathroom scene of of getting ready to go. Mm. She's just stunning. She, the perfect, yeah, and the perfect. I want to show you she's off. She's unbelievable. She's unbelievable, and and she pulls it off. And, and she does. The show really. Uh, leverages it to the hilt by the hard ending, the hard cut at the end to black, and <laughs> we're just we're just left there to sit with Betty's thoughts, which are fascinating. So, yeah, this is how it ends. That's the color blue. That it's a really, really amazing, amazing example of storytelling and moving things along in this fabulous season All right, three. Let's uh, take us one more break. And when we come back, we will talk about our favorite quotes or our standout quotes or quotes. (laughs) Or as we say, (laughs) as we call them. (laughs) Hey, don't forget to check us out on patreon.com slash they coined it pod. We have a new extra weekly bonus mini episode where Dan and I come back together after the main episode is up, edited, we've listened to it and we've gone, well, hey, we just thought of more stuff. And that is called, appropriately enough, Eminently Chewable. That is available as like an addendum episode to our patrons over there. It's a great way to support the show. There are also opportunities to participate with us in like a live, we're going to be doing this like live 
ish Zoom special bonus episode with audience Q&A. Check it out over there and stay in touch with us. You guys are pretty good about that. We are over on uh, on the Twitter and on the Instagram at TCI Mad Men Pod. And also we're on Facebook and we never talk about that, but we are. We're there. We're on Facebook. Hang out there. Maybe we'll come hang out with you. And of course, you can email us at questions at theycoinditpod.com. Pretty sure that's right. I should look. All right, let's get back to it. What's your quote, Dan? I love Lane practicing his speech before hookah. And he goes, <laughs> he says, uh, he gives the the end of the last couple lines, which are perfectly placid. And uh, Hooker goes, uh, very rousing, sir. <laughs> and uh, Lane's response is, uh, Churchill rousing or Hitler rousing? <laughs> so good. Which again, only a Brit could really say that line. An American wouldn't even, it's not even like there's an American version of that line. An American would never say, you know, JFK rousing or Hitler rousing. Or, right, right, you know, right, FDR, right, right. MLK rousing or Hitler rousing. It just, it wouldn't, there would be no, nothing like that. But Churchill, Hitler, <laughs> these guys. So perfect. You know, the war is 20 years ago and it's all very fresh. And uh, also, I Lane. So, you know, the one, the one other thing that happens in this happens in this episode is, is, is that $5,000 gets handed to Don, which me, which is your, your signing bonus, right? We, that that's the contract. And I just love Lane saying, you see, I don't just fire people. <laughs> and once again, goes to the theme. How do we see, how, how do we see who Lane is? What color blue is Lane? Right. When we look at Lane, he's the guy who fires people. He's the guy who is miserable with his wife, except then he's very loving with his wife. There's all these. We'll discuss that more when we get to the episode called The Color Green. <laughs> For money. Get it? Yeah. All right. Sorry. It, it rang to me. It rang as a connection to the to the color blue theme. And that was kind of. Cool. Yeah. All right. We now did it's it. coming next. The Gypsy and the Hobo. Gypsy and the hobo. And again, I I it was I got to see a little bit of that too. I was I you know this for it was an unusual situation where for whatever reason they were they were filming a little bit of two episodes at the same time. So, but um, so I have I have some memories of that as well. But it was just cool. it's a, it's a it's it's one of my favorite lines. I can't wait. I can't wait till quotes. Probably <laughs> probably the coolest episode title. I think that's my favorite episode. Gypsy title. and the hobo. The yeah. The, Comma, the comma, the. And the hobo, right? <laughs> yeah, the gypsy and the hobo. Um, it was really, really a great episode. So we will get to that next week. All right. All right, guys. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. One of the best ways to support us is to give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to share us on social media. A great way to literally support us is at our Patreon, where we've got some extra content. Patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. If you're able, we love you either way. And we love your comments and your questions. Bring them on. Questions at theycoinditpod.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, at TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got a lot more Mad Men to get to, and we can't wait. See you next episode.